0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Ah, Welcome all. Good evening, good evening. Looks like we are going live. We're on the last day of the half-term holidays for all, I assume. Maybe not for others.
0: It's been good to be resting.
1: It's going to be even better to be presenting this podcast for this evening. really looking forward to it lots of ground
0: to cover this is teachers talk radio and you are listening live tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation download the podbean app and search teachers talk radio follow the hashtag tt radio tune in talk it out with teachers talk radio as i was saying as been a good
1: half-term break, and I. Good evening, and welcome to all my listeners out there. Um, for anyone listening, uh, I do thank you ever so much for tuning in live. It means quite a lot. Um, it, it's it, it has been a great half-term. Um, you know, just to have that time off to relax, to kick the feet up, spend time with the kids. You know, it's even been. You know, the weather's been great. You know, I've been in the garden. I've spent time potting around. Now, I can't wait to get back to school and talk to my colleagues about my composting because that has been amazing. Like this year, I tell you, keeping rabbits, keeping the animals that we've got, we've composted down, 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 the sawdust, everything. And now I've got this fine, rich, black, hummus-rich soil. Like my my old geography A-level teacher would be immensely proud of me for creating this. It's been years in the making. I've been trialling to to and from. So I've spent today, actually – potting up some houseplants um, with the said compost, and I've just been relaxing, really. Um, Nothing too strenuous, but I know that we've got the week ahead coming. I know for many of you, it probably would be looking at that second round of summative assessments coming up. Um, I most certainly do need to get ready for those this weekend, Um, uh, as ever it is important to do so. Um, Anyway, let's get moving on with the show. So good evening and welcome to today's episode on leading in the 21st century. This is the Podbean podcast from Teachers Talk Radio that dives deep into the world of education and brings you all the latest news and insights to help you stay ahead of the curve. In today's episode, we're exploring the ever evolving landscape of digital education Um, from the development of new policies to the realities of the classroom. We'll be taking you on a journey through time, as ever, like you know that I do like a bit of time travelling, as we visit two very different schools and explore how they approach digital learning. Plus, we'll be introducing a brand new segment to the show of Did You Know where we'll be sharing fascinating facts and insights from the world of education. So sit back, relax and join us as we take a deep dive into the fascinating world of education. Um, now, just before we begin the topic at hand, which is the digitalization of education, uh, we will be discussing like right, the policy framework that will sit behind this. I just want to give you a heads up as to what this show is going to look like in terms of time, in terms of your sitting there and listening. I'm you know, i a big fan, even in the classroom. I like to make it clear to my students that uh, this is the journey that I'm taking you on. And I'll do that with you, my listeners, as well. So we will start the show today with an introduction to policy framework. It sounds boring, but I promise you it will be a blast. Um after we've had that brief introduction as to what a policy framework is and why it's important for um, a digital approach to education, we'll discuss the key stakeholders involved and really what the impact of digitalization would have on those stakeholders. We'll then, and this is the most exciting part I've been practising this section day in, day out over the half term. Um, I hope I do it uh, do it proud. I really am. But the third segment of the show uh, is the Did You Know segment where I will be presenting to you five wondrous facts, all associated, by the way, with the show itself. We'll talk about that more as the show goes on, though. Um, we'll be stopping, obviously, for breaks. Um, we'll stop in um, to hear the news that we love so much on Teachers Talk Radio um, to stay ahead of the, the, the game here. Very important for us to, to tune in for this and then after that we'll be moving on to discuss the policy itself and what are our three main objectives where we'll be discussing digital fluency device management and different cloud platforms that your school may choose to use i'm also and you should know this by now will be chucking in some mention of story time i'm an english teacher i love fiction i love creating stories so without a doubt there will be a story or two in there. That's when I'm taking you on that time-travelling tour of the two schools. Anyway, now that I've broken down the show for you, let's get stuck in with the nitty-gritty, the policy framework itself. Now, in the digital age, the use of technology in education has become increasingly prevalent, from online courses to virtual classrooms we all know those virtual classrooms. We were forced into these classrooms during the pandemic. Um, the integration of technology in education has proven to be a valuable tool in facilitating learning and improving the overall educational experience. However, with the rise of technology in education, comes the need for educational institutions to establish a clear policy framework to guide the digitalization of education. I cannot stress this to you enough, like as we go forward into this century, there is going to be more and more of a need to have a policy that sits behind the digitalization of your institutions. If we don't have them there, then... That will put our, your students, our students, our the young people of this nation at a disadvantage. You know, just look at ChatGPT and the impact that that is having currently on the sector and how much of an impact it will have in the future. And this is going to be something that is ever changing. So a good policy framework should be in place. Now, over the course of this podcast, we will be discussing one such framework, which could be used as a template to guide your own institution's approach to policy. Regarding the assimilation of technology into your setting. Now, as the rise of digital technologies has brought about the significant transformation in the way that we live, work and learn in education, the integration of technology into teaching and learning has become a necessity. As I said before, it is a necessity to keep pace with the rapidly changing world. And this is just a throwback, I suppose, to our last episode when I quoted Yuval Noah Harari. Actually, you know, one of my heroes, I guess, you know, it was was reading his books for the first time that really pulled me into the concept of futurism and thinking forward and thinking what the the world would look like um, in 2050, let's say. But the quote that we used in last week's show is that the only thing that we can be certain of in this next century is change in that change is the only certainty our students can rely on that's a scary world you know think back to when you were teenagers think back to when you as a young person growing up into the world you knew roughly what the world would look like as and when you left school you knew that there would be some college course you knew there would be some career path that you could pursue down and then settle into that job or that career whatever it may be well young people today they don't have that stability they don't have that luxury you know the world that they're growing into is going to be rapidly changing and to survive and to flourish in such a rapidly changing world they need to know how to navigate the digital sphere and that's what this framework is all about this is what tonight's show is all about really it's about introducing you if you're not already familiar with the concept Of a digital policy for your schools and what that policy should contain, or at least put some suggestions and some guidelines for you to create said policy. Now, your framework should provide guidance and direction on the implementation and use of digital technologies in education. It should ensure that all stakeholders, including students, teachers, and admin staff, are able to effectively utilize technology to support and, dare I say it, even enhance teaching and learning. Furthermore, it is important to note that the development of digital fluency is not limited to just students, but extends to all stakeholders, as technology plays a key role in supporting teaching and learning, as well as fostering student engagement and motivation. Don't worry if you're not too familiar with the term digital fluency just yet, we will define that as the show goes on. But essentially, it's just being fluent, it's having that the skill set to be able to navigate the digital realms and that's important not just for students but for all of us teachers including you know there's so many times when i've learned from students um, how to to navigate the digital realm i remember a few years ago when a student showed me how to use the at button on social media sites to prompt um certain individuals to to receive the message. I thought that was a jaw-dropping moment and that was a student teaching me so there's a lot that we can learn from students as as well. Now don't worry, you know, we as I said we are going to be exploring this in more depth as the show continues. But in response to what we've kind of just discussed above there, you know, what we've just spoken through, I think it's ins- essential to consider that this rapidly changing landscape of technology and the need then for a flexible and adaptable approach to the integration of this technology is is essential. You know, it's about adapting to the context that we are living in currently. And as we progress further into the twenty first century, there is going to be a clear need to have this adaptive ability as educators to respond to the moment. Otherwise, we'll be falling behind yet again, or further behind, should I say? Um, Now, the framework that we're discussing within this or the framework that you could possibly be designing for your own schools should provide the foundations for your school or the trust that you work for to stay up to date with the latest technological advancements and to continuously assess the impact of technology on teaching and learning, you know, with all good policies. You know, there should always be a, a cycle of, of, of review there. Now, at this point, I'm aware that some of you probably haven't been bitten by the leadership bug as of yet. And you're probably scratching your heads, thinking to yourselves, well, well this is all good stuff that you're talking about, Mark. But what the hell is a policy framework? Um, I might know. I might. I'm. You know, I'm making a grand assumption there that my listeners there all know what I mean when I say policy framework. Well, essentially, the framework is the set of guidelines, the set of objectives. Basically, it's that set of that, that strategy that sits just behind the actual published policy itself. You know, it is that, that document that is guiding a senior leadership team, let's say, or a central leadership team for a trust to navigate and create the documentation, which will then be published and set the kind of ethos and set the culture within the school. Now imagine a school that doesn't have a clear and robust policy on the digitalization of education. This school isn't going to embody the skill sets that are suitable and are necessity for a 21st century school, which is quite interesting really because there are lots of schools out there. I would say that probably don't have a clear identity identity when it comes to their future school. Um, But that could be another programme, in fact. In fact, I've got a lot to say on that, that topic. A bit more reading on my part, though, and I'll share that with you. Well, a policy framework, then, is a set of instructions, and it helps us to guide the policy in which would ultimately be written for the institution that we work for. It sits behind the policy, as we've discussed, and it is quite an important aspect of the policy itself. You know, All good frameworks, therefore, should have clear objectives and clear goals. And if you if you are serious about developing a framework for your own institution in regard to having a successful digital policy then you need to be absolutely clear as to what these goals are now first of all there is the goal of developing digital fluency um digital literacy if you will you know it's within your settings uh, curriculum you know that should be central and when i say curriculum I don't just mean one subject here and there or a tag on, you know, for a focus day of some variety. This has to be central to your schools or trusts curriculum. Now, second, this is the second objective, not our first. And we will go into detail with these objectives and goals as the show continues. Second, you should explore the advantages and disadvantages of the use of devices within your setting and decide, as to what you're going to do in terms of devices. Are you going to be a school that has a zero tolerance to devices and they sh- they're not used at all within the classrooms? Or are you going to be a school that has a BYOD policy, which we will discuss in our new, new segment as we're going to get on to soon? And the final objective that we're going to discuss in this show Um, is the adoption of cloud services and which ones would be better suited for your own context. Now, don't worry. As I said, we are going to explore each objective in finer detail as the show goes on. But if, like... um but if you have any questions or you want to reach out to me for whatever, don't hesitate to do so via the Podbean, um, the Podbean app. You can chat, uh, contact through the chat there or even um, contact me directly on my LinkedIn um, profile. Um, I really must look to sort out something to do with Twitter, I think, to get um, more of these questions. But it'd be great if any of you do reach out to me. That would be brilliant. Now. Within each area of review and for each of those objectives, um, our framework must also offer suggestions for possible policy requirements. That's what makes the policy framework slightly different from the policy itself. The framework is there to basically outline the strategy. This is what we have on offer and it would then have a set of requirements like if you are going to opt for option a as opposed to option b this is what is required of option a and that then makes it easier for when the policy is enacted by the school's leadership team or the trust's leadership team to then follow through with that it gives us a set of actions as it were to to to, to work from um now for example you know if we were to establish um an appropriate policy perhaps for the development of digital fluency remember that's our first objective i'm going to test you on this later that is our first objective you must include reference to goals such as how the curriculum will encourage and grow the digital skills and knowledge necessary for success in the 21st century You'd also need to show how the curriculum will integrate the use of technology across all subjects, not just in the dedicated technology classes or computer science class. Uh, you could also, in the requirements for this digital fluency, show how the curriculum can measure digital fluency in a consistent and meaningful manner. So it's not just a tag on again, like it is an assessment. Oh, look, everyone's done brilliantly. It has to be consistent. It has to be meaningful. So. When it comes to those three objectives within your digital policy framework, within those three objectives, there should be a set of requirements depending on, on what it is that you'll explore. Lastly, and I promise this is the last part, when writing the policy framework itself, it is important to consider the advantages and disadvantages that uh, of the policy requirements for each uh, approach. Now, as we Follow through with this with uh, this radio podcast. You know, I will be discussing in more detail the policy requirements for the use of devices and the adoption of cloud services, as well as how to adopt digital fluency within curriculums. So do stay tuned for more. That's the introduction done. I know that was a load to take on. You know, policy is not something that you know we, we all put our hands up and want to sit through and discuss. I know that, but. It is important for educators in the 21st century. Any leader worth their salt knows the value of a good policy sitting behind them. You know, it gives us rationale, it gives us purpose, it gives us drive within our institutions. So the intro is done. Hopefully you've got yourself a coffee. Hopefully you're sat down somewhere comfortable. Um, and you're ready to switch that mind of yours on to start the learning process now before we get started on the nitty gritty aspects of the policy design, I just want to summarize the potential impact on our key stakeholders. I love stakeholders. I first came across the term when I sat on a governing body years ago and You know, there was all talk of stakeholder this, stakeholder that. And it slowly dawned on me that the school wasn't just a place with teachers and students. There were so many people, so many people invested in the entity. Um, And it's something I feel quite passionately about in education today, like considering the impact that we have, not just on the students themselves, but all stakeholders. So let's talk about our first stakeholder. This is our chief stakeholder, the students. With technology in the classroom, Students obviously gain access to an immediate and vast amounts of information and resources. You know, just just imagine for a second, if you will, you're teaching, you know, you're you're teaching your subject. You know, it could be whatever subject you're teaching. Just imagine this. okay? and your students all have access to laptops. You're you're chucking questions at them left, right and centre. And you've got some smart Alex student who sat on the back row, let's say he pulls out his laptop. He's working on Chat GPT. He's literally taking your questions down in real time. And he's able to use that AI to almost predict what it is that you're going to say next and almost, you know, stand up and, and just essentially take over and teach the class ahead of you. I know when I was a trainee teacher, I had huge gaps in my subject knowledge. If there was a student who had an AI a piece of AI software that was in the classroom, you know, two steps ahead of me, that would have been my biggest fear. But this is what we're talking about. You know, students can have access to that technology and learn almost instantaneously. Just imagine if they had that in the in the classroom. Not that that would happen. You know, perhaps there would be policy set up around the fair usage of chat GPT. But that's that's for another show, perhaps. Now, it will allow them to explore and learn at their own pace and even collaborate with their peers. There's that collaborate word. I love this. We'll talk about that in more time as the show goes on. Now, I will place emphasis on the previous point in terms of collaboration, because collaboration is a practice that you know is going to be essential for the 21st century and we want our students to be able to collaborate in a safe learning environment to better equip them for the world that they will eventually have to navigate which is those digital spheres that i was talking before the goal then of a robust digital policy is to empower students to become independent learners and responsible digital citizens so there's some you know impact on our first core stakeholder the students so with this in mind we better keep our ears to the ground as if we are lucky you know as i said earlier we might even learn a thing or two from them you know typically as i mentioned before young people tend to be um, slightly more ahead of the curve as it were when it comes to the digitalization of the world around them and we can learn as much from the students as they can learn from us but we are the adults we're the professionals we have to teach them how to collaborate online we have to teach them and give them that space for them to make mistakes and to learn how to be a digital citizen. Now, next up, we'll talk about our next stakeholder, which is teachers. That's you guys, I hope. There might be some teachers listening. There might be some non-teachers listening. Unless Buzz, the school dog, is tuned in again, to which I say, who's a good boy, Buzz? Who's a good boy? Uh, I I, I had to do that shout-out. I absolutely love you know one of my best colleagues I shared an office with a with a school dog not so long ago not my previous school the school beforehand um, he's still in service today I believe um I get regular updates from my sister and and some of my old colleagues. Um, he's still sniffing around and occasionally snatching the odd sandwich out of uh, staff out of the staff room. Um, brilliant stuff, Buzz. So keep up the good work. Anyway, if Buzz, if you are listening, I consider you a teacher as well. So anyway, teachers, as technology plays a large sorry uh, <laughs> anyway teachers as technology plays a larger role in the classroom teachers must be equipped with the necessary skills to effectively integrate it into their teaching. That means training on digital tools and resources, which supports them to how to, you know, effectively incorporate technology into lessons. This is a big passion of mine and something that I'm interested in researching as I go through 2023. You know, how are we training and upskilling teachers in the use of technology in the classroom, but not just using like technology is in the hardware but the actual software how do we you know how could we utilize AI to further enhance teaching and learning but don't worry you know you know uh, teachers sometimes are quite fearful of technology but you know I have to say this to you really spell it out it's there for us to use as well as the students you know we could utilize the, the power of technology to enhance teaching and learning and students will do incredibly better now our next stakeholder is the admin staff who also play a crucial role in our institutions it's these guys that use technology to streamline the experience of both students and teachers alike you know especially the technician staff that will ensure that the technology that we use is safely and effectively in you know being utilized in the the appropriate manner inside a school but it's not just the technicians we're talking like the admin staff we're talking receptionists we're talking about pastoral workers we're talking about teaching assistants even you know every adult in the school should be digitally fluent to be able to streamline and make their experience of working in the school far easier you know Imagine this time that a a pastoral lead, um, a behaviour support manager could save if the doing tasks are automated by an AI. That frees them up to have more contact time with the students that might need to have that human contact um, with them. Um, So, you know, the the technology there, if we upskill our staff, could also have an impact on on admin staff as well. Um, It might be that, you know this admin staff uh, stakeholder um we, we have to involve developing like policies and procedures um that support those roles to be able to do that contact time or in the case of keeping children safe and and making them responsible digital citizens setting up a policy that allows us to guide them and to support and enact um that support to ensure that everybody is safe whilst we're in line, um, our fourth stakeholder, and this is sometimes forgotten by by educators, is our students' parents uh, and guardians. Um, knowing that their children are using technology in a safe and secure manner, in my opinion, anyway, is is essential. You know, you have you know, if we were to implement a comprehensive technology policy, a digital policy at our schools. Um, we should be providing assurance to parents and guardians that their children are protected whilst they are making use of that technology in the classroom. Um, And the benefit of this is that we're not just having like that direct impact on the students, but we can educate parents on the positive impacts of technology and also kind of grow their skill set as well. Because don't forget, you know, many of the parents that are sending their children to secondary school today they were at school say 10 years ago let's say let's imagine for a second maybe longer um and the world was a very different place then so you know they're also having to come to terms with the digitalization not just of education but the digitalization of the world and and perhaps there's an opportunity for us to educate our parents in how to monitor and how to um be responsible digital citizens you know there's a there's a huge gap there a huge hole that perhaps needs filling now, as I said, it's, it's, it's important there to get parents on board as, with, as it with, is with all the stakeholders. But, and this is a fairly serious comment that I want to get across to you all, is that the integration of technology in the classroom, yes, it can have a significant impact on students and teachers and admin staff and even parents. But the final stakeholder that I want to kind of discuss is... The wider community, you know, the global community, even. By promoting the use of technology in education, we can demonstrate the value of technology and foster a culture of innovation and creativity um, outside of the school's direct sphere of influence. Now, if we want to make the world a better place, let's say, it starts <laughs> with growing the right mindsets in the right manner so that those influenced by our institutions can go out there in the wider world. And do some good. So let's get everybody involved. You know, don't just, you know, stop and think that your education digital uh, policy is just for your institution. It's not. It's it's for a wider purpose. You know, this is a philosophical, this is an ethical concern. You know, we want students to grow and be the leaders of tomorrow. And if we want them to be the right leaders of tomorrow, we have to give them the skill sets in order to be able to do that. Now, let's just conclude this part of the show. We've done the intro, we've discussed the stakeholders, um, the digitalization of education. It has the potential to bring about significant positive change in the way students learn. And teachers teach it's all about as i said before empowering students to become those independent learners the leaders of tomorrow it's also about providing teachers with the tools that they need to effectively integrate technology into teaching and it's also to ensure that technology is used safely and securely so let's just embrace technology within our institutions and create more engaging relevant and personalized learning learning experience for all So that's the intro of the show covered, plus the stakeholders there. So we've done our first two segments, and we've done it within good time. Half an hour is what I've planned, and that's 28 minutes in, 29 minutes. I suppose I could just waffle to you just for one more minute or so, or I could introduce my new segment, which I've been waiting to do. I'm going to play around with a little bit of music. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. I haven't really spoken to the teacher talk radio team or not here, but I found some, like, sample music on the podbean live account but i'm going to to try anyway let's see let's see what we can do so in this next segment it's called did you know okay it's the did you know segment special okay let's make something of it now in this segment i will unpack several i say several it's actually five interesting facts about topics explored Within the show that we're presenting and what we're what we're discussing, so obviously the topic is uh, digitalization of education. It's technology, essentially. Big surprise there, eh? Um, I know some of you are probably thinking, um, you know, sometimes you know, as I go through these facts and they are really interesting. I find them quite interesting, and some of them are just plain fun to know about. And I will likely chuck in an anecdote or two of my own. Uh, especially for the facts that I can connect to some of them I'm just look I, I read for I'm like wow I did not know that um, it, it has no bearing on my life whatsoever but other facts that kind of chuck at uh, have been chucked at me um, <laughs> well it just makes me it, it takes me down a trip down memory lane I suppose now at the end of the segment I want you to really reflect back and think about whether or not you knew those facts that I shared um, give yourself a score out of five I suppose um, and if you can top my score, or even get five out of five, I will publicly acknowledge your superiority uh, and your uh, big up the skills of trivia that you have on the next show that I broadcast. Um, Just contact me and let me know that you beat me, I guess. Um, So without further ado, let me introduce the lead in in the 21st century segment of Did You Know? And let's see if the music works. Hi. Did you know that the world's first computer programmer was a woman, Ada Lovelace, a mathematician and writer? Um, she's widely regarded as the world's first computer programmer for her work on Charles Babbage's proposed mechanical general purpose computer, the analytical engine, and that was in the Victorian period, the mid-19th century. Lovelace recognised that the machine had potential beyond pure calculation And created an algorithm that could calculate Bernoulli numbers, making her the first to publish a complex computer programme. Personally, I think you should all know that because two weeks ago I had spoken specifically about um, Ada Lovelace, or it might have been the first show that I broadcast. But she definitely was featured on the programme because... Quite often, women are all too often forgotten or marginalised from the history books. And actually, Ada Lovelace is somewhat of a hero in our household um, because of what, she, what she's done. Um, I think she's a fairly interesting character in herself. You know, she's the daughter of Lord Byron. Um, if you don't know who Lord Byron is, you know, he's that crazy loon, um, the romantic lunatic that basically um, started... Uh, an artistic, <laughs> a poetic movement, uh, romanticism. Um, I studied Lord Byron when I was at university uh, and I teach Lord Byron in poetry today, but he was renowned as a um, a free lover, let's say. Um, and what I find quite interesting with Ada Lovelace is Lady Byron, who was absolutely sick to death of Lord Byron's infidelity, um, you know, when she ran away from him, she took Ada Lovelace away or Ada Byron at that point um, away from him. And through fear of having Ada turn out like her father, um, Lady Byron decided that she would invest all of her education in mathematics. Um, so if not for Lord Byron's infidelity, we wouldn't have had Ada Lovelace working on Charles Babbage's proposed mechanical general purpose computer. And we wouldn't have had our first computer programmer um, ever. Perhaps, well, we would have had it at some point, but it wouldn't have been Ada Lovelace. I just think that's a fascinating story because there's a connection there, a link to um, <laughs> to English literature. Anyway, number two, did you know that in 2021, the global e-learning market size was valued at over $200 billion and is projected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 14.6% from 2021 to 2028. That's this decade that we're in now, if anyone's wondering. Um, I didn't know that. I could have guessed that it's it's a sector that is is growing. Um, if anyone out there is possibly looking for some savvy investments, Could I suggest looking to invest in foundations um, within the UK? Uh, The UK actually has been a leader in e-learning with providers like FutureLearn and the Open University. I don't know if you could invest stocks in those companies, but, you know, digital learning technologies out there, online learning and blended learning, um, which obviously was accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, only ceased to grow more and more as we go through the rest of this decade. So if you're looking for a savvy investment option, there there you go. Now, this fact, number three, I absolutely love this fact. Genuinely, um, this is my favourite fact of the Did You Know segment today. Did you know that Minecraft, a popular video game, has been used for educational purposes? Well, I never. Did you know that? Teachers have incorporated Minecraft into their lesson plans to teach subjects such as history, geography and science, as well as to develop critical thinking and problem solving skills. In fact, Minecraft has been used to create virtual replicas of historical sites to teach students about sustainable living. Some of you probably did know that already. I certainly did because I actually—it um, was must have been a fair few years ago now. I convinced my then, my older uh, head teacher, uh, Paul Boxall, brilliant, brilliant head teacher—that um, we should invest in Minecraft Edu as it was uh, called then. It probably still is actually, um, and we had it installed. Thirty um, copies of the game slash educational um, technology in the ict lab and i used to have english lessons in there and i planned a whole unit of work having my year eights recreate the globe theater and stage a performance of Macbeth. um i wouldn't go back and do it again today uh, perhaps but it was great fun and if you ever want to see collaboration um, you know, put 30 kids online in, into a Minecraft realm and have them work together. You'll see some co- <laughs> some collaboration there. Anyway, number four. Did you know that the first laptop was invented in 1981 by Adam Osborne, who named it the Osborne 1? <laughs> well, there you go. An Aussie 1. Um, can imagine taking that under your arm into the office. Uh, well, the laptop... Well, actually, no, you probably wouldn't take it in the office because the laptop weighed 24 pounds and had a five-inch screen. Uh, making it less portable than modern laptops today. However, it clearly was a major innovation at the time, and it's paved the way for development of smaller, more portable laptops, um, possibly even the phones that we carry in our pockets today. Just think, that's like, what, 81, 440-odd years ago? So 40 years ago the first laptops invented. Just imagine for a second what 40 years like from now, 2050, 2060, what kind of technology are we going to be utilizing then? What is it going to look like? How far are we going to push this technological revolution? Anyway, number 5, this is our final did you know. Did you know that the term BYOD, aha, there you go, we've come back to it, bring your own device was first coined in 2009 by Intel as a way to describe the growing trend of employees bringing their own devices to work. This concept has since been applied to education as schools have adopted BYOD policies to allow students to bring their personal devices to school for educational purposes. Okay, well, two out of five of them, which I don't think is a bad score. But there's someone bound to be out there who's done better than me. So just let me know via the Podbean chat or message me directly on LinkedIn for your scores. I think on this note, we'll have a welcome
0: break and listen to the news. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: Cambrian News reports on Wales' survey of school sport and its findings from 2022. The results showed that 39% of pupils took part in organised sport outside of the curriculum, a decrease of 9% since 2018 with a further 36% of pupils reporting no frequent participation in an organised sport outside of the curriculum, an increase of 8%, making the nation less active than in 2018. The report also highlights issues with schools having appropriate equipment to make sport provision more inclusive, as well as concerns around a growing wealth divide. There is a 15% difference in participation in organised sport outside of the curriculum between the least and most deprived areas. The gap has increased since 2018. Football remains the most popular sport participated in at a community setting. In schools, there has also been a decline in the number of minutes of curriculum PE per week, with primary schools providing an average of 93 minutes down from 99 minutes in 2018, and secondary schools providing around 93 minutes down from 95 in 2018. The decrease in wider participation is attributed to the pandemic, but funding, adequate training and reliance on volunteers also has an impact. Full details of the survey can be found on the Sport Wales website. The impact a teacher can have on the lives of students has been a topic across radio and television media outlets after the Princess of Wales was pictured hugging her former history teacher. The pair met up after a 25 year gap during a visit to the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall, with the princess reportedly telling her old teacher, the things you taught me, I now teach to my children. Former teacher Mr Embry described the princess as exuberant and just like she was. He also referred to her as conscientious and considerate while she was a student. The pleasure at seeing her former teacher and the time spent chatting were captured in many photographs and resulted in plenty of further discussion on teachers who were remembered fondly for playing a role in the lives of their pupils. Strikes, teacher pay and conditions, and previous comments made by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan continue to dominate the news. ITV News reports that Ms. Keegan has defended her claim that teachers are among the best off financially when you consider the whole package. She told ITV News that benefits outside of the basic salary made it hard to compare their jobs with those in the private sector. In the interview, Ms. Keegan made comments about possible plans to toughen up the law to force teachers to inform school leaders if they plan to strike, and insisted that she would not budge from her position of rejecting above inflation pay rises. Ms. Keegan also talked of plans to change the university application system UCAS to include apprenticeships alongside traditional degrees and to promote different career paths. The interview was part of a two-day visit to the northwest, with ITV having exclusive access to Ms. Keegan. Full details of the story, and more of the Education Secretary's views on strikes, pay, and the view she has on education, can be found on the ITV News website. The United Nations appears to have weighed into the debate on religious schools in Ireland. On the National Secular Society website, the group suggests that the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child (UNCRC) has urged the Republic of Ireland to guarantee the right of all children to practice freely their religion or belief by no longer allowing exemptions to ensure a child's right to education on religious or ethos grounds. Most primary schools in Ireland are run by churches and 90% are Catholic schools. Over half of secondary schools are linked to a particular religious denomination, although there are 150 multi-denominational schools in the country. The UNCRC also called on Ireland to strengthen measures to eliminate discrimination against LGBTQ children, as well as children of minority faith or non-faith backgrounds. The issue has raised its head again after reports by the Irish Department for Education were submitted to the UNCRC to highlight progress following previous recommendations. Finally, BBC News features a long-read article about the BAFTA-nominated film Blue Jean, and the lesbian teachers who inspired it. The plot follows a lesbian PE teacher in the late 1980s, at a time when a controversial law banned the promotion of homosexuality via Section 28. The legislation was in force until 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England and Wales. The film was released on the 10th of February. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech
4: briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm taking a look at the AI-powered, all-new Microsoft Bing search. Always soon to be saying, Bing it instead of Google it. There's only one way to decide. Let's have a search engine scrap. First, to use Bing, it's recommended you have the Edge browser installed. However, you can just go to bing.com. To get the full experience, I'm signing into my Microsoft account on bing.com in the Edge browser and signing into my Google account on google.co.uk in Chrome. Putting both interfaces side by side, they look the same, only Google has no distractions. Today that is, as sometimes there's a Google Doodle to celebrate something. Bing has a block of top news stories, and you can scroll down to see more headlines and ads. This, I feel, is a negative for Bing. As it's really easy to be distracted. Click something that catches your eye and searching turns to procrastinating. Other slight differences are Bing search results when clicked, opening a new tab, Google's don't. This is not a problem on your computer but tabs are different on your phone and it could be a little annoying having to close them if you're doing an extensive search. On the flip side it could be useful if comparing prices etc. The decision is for you to make. I know what you're thinking. Test the AI Steve. Okay, I'm on it. As Bing now wants to chat with me, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue 5 people. The results differ. Bing gives me 165 million results, top being planning a large barbecue cookout for a crowd. It was a decent read and ranged from cooking for 60 to 100 people to 5 to 6. I'm now quite hungry. Google gave me a string of barbecues to buy, adverts, and then the first result was on the barbecue calculator. This was right up my geek street and I think Google won this round. You put the number of people in and then put the number of kids in and select some other options and it tells you what you need to buy to have a barbecue for that many people. Genius. Omni was third down in the Bing search. Only very slightly is Google winning at the moment. I like that Bing didn't hit me with ads straight away. I thought Google suggested searches, the people also asked bit was neater and easier to scan than Bing's. Bing's was a bit wordy. With Google slightly in the lead, Let's do my last test. I'm going to introduce some vegans. Now on my search in Bing, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people, to a vegan, what should I cook? In Google, I simply type barbecue, five people, two vegan. Bing brings me 176 million results and Google and me 109 million. Both show pretty much exact results, apart from the advertising from Google. Same top sites and no sign of meat anywhere. I'm inundated with vegan recipes for barbecue. Scrolling down, AI wins. The sixth result on Bing is 20 tips for hosting a vegan guest to dinner. By the time I get to page four of Google's results, I've given up. To draw a conclusion, it's down to personal preference. Bing uses the same search algorithms and the AI is new, so it's still learning. The question is really, what will it be like in the future when it's had time to learn more? Don't forget to tell us what you would do if a vegan was coming to your barbecue. Get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was 2 Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods,
0: your tech briefing on Teacher's Talk Radio. (laughs) Okay, welcome back to the show.
1: I I, I love that two minute tech. I I didn't even know that um, Microsoft being, um, well, I could guess that they were investing in AI. Um, But it's nice to hear that kind of search engine off there, in that two minute tech there. That was was, was pretty cool. Um, What would I do? If a vegan were to come to a barbecue that I'm hosting, well, my wife is vegan, so I've been doing this for years now. Um, Basically, I've got a big enough barbecue where I have all of the meat products on one side of the barbecue. And then I have this huge space where I quite often cook the vegan um, what's-its, as it were, and some vegetarians as well on the other side. Um, And I basically try my hardest not to mix the utensils up when I'm cooking the meat and the vegan products at the same time um, if you're really interested though I know a wicked recipe um, for chili corn on the cob um, oh, it's lovely um, you have to mix the butter up with some like chopped up fresh chilies and then you kind of marinate that in the corn on the cob and then you cook that well you boil the corn on the cob first and then you marinate it in the the chili butter and then you roast that on the <clears throat> on, on the barbecue itself oh they're delicious uh, but this is not a cooking segment this is um our podcast on leading in the 21st century and i hope that you've settled uh, back down um you've refilled that cup of coffee and you're ready to learn more about this gray world of policy design now remember Uh, I hope you remember, the first and most important goal of our digital policy framework. Have you been listening? Don't worry if not, it's perfectly fine. The first goal of our digital policy framework and that is digital fluency and we're going to be talking about the importance of digital fluency in today's world. As we all know technology is advancing rapidly, we've discussed that already and it's important for students to be equipped with the necessary skills and knowledge to thrive in this ever-changing world in the 21st century. And that's where digital fluency comes in. The ability to use technology effectively for communication, collaboration, critical thinking and creating content, all of which I hasten to add are the four C's of learning. You know, this modern curriculum should have these softer skills embedded within them you know obviously we must still teach the national curriculum because that's what we're directed to do as teachers that is what we have to do um, but there's nothing to say that we can't inject those four Cs into our curriculums at the same time and doing so through the digitalization of education seems to be a savvy choice now first and foremost if you are in the process of developing a policy framework for digital fluency it's important to focus on integrating technology across all subjects, not just in technology classes. By doing so, students become exposed to digital skills and technology in real-world contexts, fostering digital fluency and preparing them for the digital age. Gone are the days where we could sit at a desk scribbling notes and gluing in resources. In today's world, technology is a vital part of our daily lives and it's essential that our education system reflects this. After all, do we honestly believe that when our students leave the education system that they will not be expected to navigate the digital world? You know, I was having a conversation with one of my um, old old colleagues just uh, two days ago and he was talking about how, you know, when he had left school, he didn't have the need to use pen and paper. He didn't write anything, not until he came back into education and suddenly he had to start using pen and paper again. It's bizarre, like we 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 train up for this outdated technology, writing, and then we go out into the real world where it's not necessarily a skill that we still use. Um as I say, gone are the days <laughs> that we could sit there at a desk scribbling those notes. Now some naysayers out there, they might well believe that these skills are better suited for specific areas like computer science or tech classes. Yet, integrating technology into the curriculum has so many benefits, including enhanced learning outcomes, you know, uh, as well as increased student engagement and even motivation. You know, if ever you want to motivate a kid, give them a piece of technology and they will go. Uh, Just make sure that you're monitoring it, have a decent policy behind that device that you're giving them. Now, the best example that I can give you. Has to root back to the "Did you know" segment that we've just uh, we've just um, gone through, um, where we learnt about Minecraft Education. As I mentioned before, like if you want to see a group of curious, uh, what a group of kids uh, can achieve in digital realms, then go no further to look there. Like I said, give thirty students access to Minecraft Edu, set them the parameters of what you want them to achieve within your subject area, and let them teach each other just watch it. It's a scary thing to do and a very brave thing to do as an educator because it's so far outside of the norm. But you can learn and you probably will learn so much from them in the way that they collaborate and and function. You know, if I go back to my heyday when I used it, you know, perhaps being the teacher that I am now, I would have slightly more of a pedagogical approach, I suppose, to introducing it to the classroom. Um, And probably capitalise on that resource more so than I did as a, you know, a strapping 24-year-old as I was when I first played around with it. Now, more importantly, the integration of tech into the wider curriculum, it prepares students for the future. You know, we've spoken about this at length, you know, know, creating digital citizens. Now, where collaboration and communication through cloud Platforms, for example, sets our students up for an age where they will be expected (coughs) to navigate such technology. We want to set our students up to be the leaders and creators of this tech that will further enhance the quality of life on this planet. And quite frankly, this will not happen all the while students are bound to 19th or 20th century approaches to learning. It is essential then to consider the potential. Disadvantages of digitalisation in education, as well, such as the associated costs that we apply to it, the technological dependence, the distractions that it can cause, as well as the maintenance and repair responsibilities. A decent digital policy framework should outline the requirements for developing digital fluency, including integration across the curriculum, how exactly this will come about, and Is it a single year plan or an integration that spans more than five years, let's say? It also needs to include consistent and meaningful assessment, perhaps best allocated to those uh, computer science lessons. Perhaps not. You know, further to this, though, the educational leaders must have a clear approach to upskilling staff with professional development for teachers, as well as generating awareness of the move to a digital world to student and parents alike. You know, with most good policies here in terms of digital fluency it's not just about upskilling those students to be digitally fluent you know as any school leader will know you will have staff out there that are not as experienced when it comes to the digital world you know don't you know we could look as far back as the covid-19 pandemic when suddenly teachers were expected to you know teach from home and to use platforms and online learning that it was completely foreign, completely so far removed from the pedagogical experience of so many educators and professionals out there, you know, it's kind of like a baptism of fire, I guess, but because it's forced us to kind of consider and and, and actually complete um, embrace the digital revolution. But on the flip side, it should be on the educational leaders uh, responsibility, part of their responsibility To upskill those staff and make sure that staff are digitally fluent as we progress into the future, because you can't have like a digital fluency policy um, where you're developing students digital fluency if the staff are not digitally fluent themselves. So it kind of has to encompass the culture of the whole school as opposed to just this is on the students back. They are the ones that need to be digitally fluent. Now, obviously, all of the items that we've discussed there are important, but what's just as important is the context of your own setting. Um, You know, it's the context that you serve. There is no one policy out there that can be cloned and placed into the context of your own school, which is why, you know, I'm not sharing with you a policy framework that perhaps would be suitable for the school where I work. It doesn't it doesn't work like that you know, you have to develop a policy framework that is suitable for your context. You could look at examples, you can look at models, you can listen to what we're exploring here and use that as the basis for your uh, basis for your policy framework. But ultimately, it has to be something that is grown from the ground up. It has to be grown from the soil of your own context. You know, I'm, I'm gonna to refer to my colleague, Elizabeth Carr. She, you know, I absolutely love working um, with Elizabeth. She's a great history teacher. Um, but she spoke to me about this old history um, research paper, Growing Your Historical Garden, or something along those lines. I can't quite remember it now. Um, but it's about growing a, his- a history curriculum and nurturing it like it's a garden and allowing it to grow as time goes on. I suppose what I'm saying here is that the context of your setting is the soil, and your policy has to grow from that soil you know don't expect it to be something that you put into place and it just has this panacea effect and and suddenly your school is digitally fluent it has to be something that is led and planned for um as mentioned though you know if you don't do that (laughs) you know i could only describe it to be like um giving uh, a wild badger a bath or something along those lines knowing that you're going to come out of that experience far worse i don't know why i've just used um the image of about giving a badger a bath i've never given a badger a bath before but i would imagine it would be like a, a terrible experience um i don't know if anyone's ever given a badger a bath before it'd be interesting to learn of their experiences now i suppose what i'm trying to say though is that um, we all need to understand that digital fluency it, it, it isn't just a buzzword you know it sounds like it's a buzzword i'm certain there are many educators out there that are using it but digital fluency is a necessary skill set that our students need to thrive in this digital age. Unfortunately, not all schools have adopted um, this growth mindset. And my worry is that if such policies are not created and maintained, many young people across this country, across the globe even, will be left behind as the rest of society grow into their digital selves. My fear sits alongside that gap that already exists between the haves and have-nots of this world. You know, that gap will only grow ever larger if you have some of those uh, systems adopt a digitalization approach to their teaching and learning and those that do not, because those that do not will enter the world significantly behind. Think of that cultural capital, but in this case, we're talking about the digital capital that they have as digital citizens. If they don't know how to navigate the online realms, then they have to essentially work from a disadvantage. And I suppose I'm speaking from my own experience, like from my school days. You know, I, uh, you know, I take my hat off to my um to my to my IT teacher, Mister Enfield. I actually tr- tr- trained when I trained to be a teacher. He was still a, a leader at the school where I trained, so I did get to work with him again. But as an IT teacher, did he captivate me? Did he teach me how to navigate? the internet appropriately uh, probably not um i wish perhaps you know something i did learn in those lessons was how to use excel and i actually love an excel spreadsheet i genuinely do um, it, it, i could spend hours playing around with spreadsheets um, but i remember going to college and then university and suddenly being faced with having to navigate you know these fairly complex systems to me you know even using google uh, efficiently and effectively was foreign to me and it wasn't until I met with one one, one of my old friends at university who showed me this is how you use the internet that suddenly I kind of woke up and thought wow how far behind was I? Um, So it's not just a buzzword, it is a skill set and it is important for schools to adopt um, the development of digital fluency. So just to conclude this section, um, it's important that we continue to prioritise digital fluency within our policy frameworks, you know, to ensure that all students have access to this technology, um, to technology that will prepare them for the future. As we move forward, we must work towards creating those comprehensive policy frameworks that prioritise the development of digital fluency for all students regardless of their background, regardless of the subject, it should be central to the curriculum within the school. Now, it should be discussed around the leadership table. How are we creating a digital school? How are we creating a future school? How are we developing a school fit for the 21st century? Well, with this fresh in our mind, I do want to take you to our next segment of the show, which is story time. For those who have listened to my previous podcasts, you'll know I
0: love a bit of fiction,
1: Plato, and have travelled to 2050 to explore the sci-fi world of education through scenario planning. Well, this week we will stay in our own time, but be transported between eras through the descriptions of two possible schools. As I read, sit back, relax. Enjoy the show. But do think and reflect which of these two schools best fits your own setting. Are you ready? School A. As you enter the school gates, the first thing you notice is the lack of any technology. No tablets, no laptops, no smartphones, just a sea of faces glued to textbooks. In fact, the school is so outdated that it's still using overhead projectors and whiteboards. The IT room is a sight to behold, a room filled with archaic monitors and outdated CPUs, and these computers are so slow that they take a whole class period to load a single web page. Or what's more, the keyboards are so ancient, and they're almost unrecognizable. The school has attempted to fix them, but the IT guy they hired last year left just after one week, unable to keep up with the task. The classrooms are a throwback to a bygone era, with desks lined up in neat rows facing the teacher's desk. The students have no choice but to take notes with pen and paper, which means their handwriting is so illegible that it could be mistaken for ancient hieroglyphics the teachers are doing their best to make the most of what they have but it's hard to make a dull subject like history interesting when all you have to work with is a whiteboard and a in board marker in english lessons students are given tattered copies of classic novels and are asked to write essays independently in silence the only source of information is the library which is filled with outdated reference books that haven't been updated since the 1990s. In geography, students are expected to memorise facts and figures about countries and their capitals from a textbook that was written before the fall of the Berlin Wall. The classroom is filled with dusty maps and globes that are so old that some countries no longer exist. The schools rule about not allowing phones on the premises, Is strictly enforced, with teachers on high alert to confiscate any that they spot. The students are resigned to the fact that they'll be without their phone for the whole school day, and so they resort to playing hangman or noughts and crosses on scraps of paper. The only tech used in the school is a CD player that the music teacher uses to play music during class. Unfortunately, The only CD the school owns is a scratched-up copy of Greece, which they've been playing for the past 20 years. As you can imagine, the students of School A are far from filled, frilled with their education. They dream of a world where they can use devices to do research, collaborate on projects, and engage with learning in a more dynamic way. But for now, they're stuck in a school that's so outdated. It might as well be a museum. So let's look at School B. Listen closely. Does this sound like your school? School B. School B was a sight to behold. It was the embodiment of modern digital age. As soon as you entered the school premises, you could sense the technological aura that emanated from the building. The walls were adorned with digital screens displaying animated infographics, and the halls were filled with the soothing hum of students typing away on their keyboards. The school's digital policy was clear and robust, as if it had been written by a team of tech gurus from Silicon Valley. The students were not only allowed to use their devices on school premises, but were encouraged to do so. In fact, every lesson incorporated some form of e learning, whether it was through the use of their devices or through some form of online formative assessment. The students at School B worked collaboratively in a manner that was fit for the 21st century. They didn't just share notes with each other. They shared Google Docs, Excel sheets and PowerPoint presentations. They didn't just discuss ideas, they did so through online forums and chat rooms. They were the digital natives that their parents and grandparents only read about in the newspapers. But what was most impressive about School B was the digital version of the school that existed and was nourished by the students and teachers. It was almost like a hidden layer to the education taking place this digital world is integrated into every aspect of the school there are interactive whiteboards in every classroom digital notice boards in the hallways and online portals for students to access their grades and assignments students have access to an array of online resources including ebooks online tutorials and educational apps making it easier to learn at their own pace and in a way that suits their learning style. The English lessons were a delight to attend, with the students collaborating on their work through Microsoft Teams to write their essays and using online resources to fact-check their work. The geography classes were just as impressive, with students using 3D mapping tools to create virtual landscapes and using Google Earth to explore different parts of the world. The art classes were a digital feast for the eyes, with students using digital tablets and software to create stunning pieces of digital art, which were then shared with the world through the school's online gallery. Even PE was not immune to the digital revolution, with students using fitness apps to track their progress and competing against each other in online challenges. As you left School B, you couldn't help but feel that you've just visited a school from the future. It was as if School A was a relic from a bygone era, and School B was leading the charge into a brave new world. So what are your thoughts? Which of the two schools would best place your own institution in? Which would you prefer to work for? I've worked for a few schools myself, and I know exactly where I would place myself, given the choice. I've experienced the joys of both of these settings, and I know where I would place myself, ethically where I would put myself in that situation. But realistically, these two vignettes are not real. They are polar opposites for the intention of highlighting the stark contrasts education may find itself in within this next decade. A more suitable situation, which we would probably all associate ourselves with, would be the blend of the two together. School C, if you if you will. Now this school has a digital policy. It's in place, it emphasises the importance of responsible use of technology in school. While not every lesson incorporates e learning, teachers use technology when it's appropriate to enhance learning. The school provides students with access to computers, but students are not allowed to use their phones during class. The English lessons at School C involve a mix of traditional pen and paper work as well as uh, assignments that require the use of technology. Students use online resources to research and collaborate on projects, but they also write essays and stories by hand. In geography, students use maps and atlases but explore satellite imagery and online interactive maps to gain a deeper understanding of the world around them. In art class, students use both traditional and uh, media such as paint and clay, as well as digital tools to create and share their work. PE at School C involves both traditional team sports and fitness activities, as well as incorporating technology in the form of wearable fitness trackers and online resources that help students learn about healthy lifestyles. Overall, then, school C strikes that balance between a traditional and digital learning methods, recognizing the value of both in our transisting world as we transist into the 21st century. Now, this sounds more like the reality of our age today, you know, a hybrid of those two polar opposite worlds that we discussed in the story time. Now, we do digress. Okay, I think story time is over. The time has come for us to tune back in, update ourselves with the latest news in education. (laughs) Yes, the DSL at school would be overworked. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Um, But we are going to jump straight back in with the news now. Um, And then we'll be set to just finish with our last segments. Hope you're enjoying the show.
0: This is Teacher's Talk Radio and this is Teacher's Talk Radio News.
3: Cambrian News reports on Wales' survey of school sport and its findings from 2022. The results showed that 39% of pupils took part in organised sport outside of the curriculum, a decrease of 9% since 2018 with a further 36% of pupils reporting no frequent participation in an organised sport outside of the curriculum, an increase of 8%, making the nation less active than in 2018. The report also highlights issues with schools having appropriate equipment to make sport provision more inclusive, as well as concerns around a growing wealth divide. There is a 15% difference in participation in organised sport outside of the curriculum between the least and most deprived areas. The gap has increased since 2018. Football remains the most popular sport participated in at a community setting. In schools, there has also been a decline in the number of minutes of curriculum PE per week, with primary schools providing an average of 93 minutes down from 99 minutes in 2018, and secondary schools providing around 93 minutes down from 95 in 2018. The decrease in wider participation is attributed to the pandemic but funding adequate training and reliance on volunteers also has an impact full details of the survey can be found on the sport wales website the impact a teacher can have on the lives of students has been a topic across radio and television media outlets after the princess of wales was pictured hugging her former history teacher the pair met up after a 25 year gap during a visit to the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall, with the princess reportedly telling her old teacher, the things you taught me, I now teach to my children. Former teacher Mr Embry described the princess as exuberant and just like she was. He also referred to her as conscientious and considerate while she was a student. The pleasure at seeing her former teacher and the time spent chatting were captured in many photographs and resulted in plenty of further discussion on teachers who were remembered fondly for playing a role in the lives of their pupils. Strikes, teacher pay and conditions, and previous comments made by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan continue to dominate the news. ITV News reports that Ms. Keegan has defended her claim that teachers are among the best off financially when you consider the whole package. She told ITV News that benefits outside of the basic salary made it hard to compare their jobs with those in the private sector. In the interview, Ms. Keegan made comments about possible plans to toughen up the law to force teachers to inform school leaders if they plan to strike, and insisted that she would not budge from her position of rejecting above inflation pay rises. Ms. Keegan also talked of plans to change the university application system UCAS to include apprenticeships alongside traditional degrees and to promote different career paths. The interview was part of a two-day visit to the northwest, with ITV having exclusive access to Ms Keegan. Full details of the story, and more of the Education Secretary's views on strikes, pay, and the view she has on education, can be found on the ITV News website. The United Nations appears to have weighed into the debate on religious schools in Ireland. On the National Secular Society website, the group suggests that the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, has urged the Republic of Ireland to guarantee the right of all children to practice freely their religion or belief by no longer allowing exemptions to ensure a child's right to education on religious or ethos grounds. Most primary schools in Ireland are run by churches and 90% are Catholic schools. Over half of secondary schools are linked to a particular religious denomination, although there are 150 multi-denominational schools in the country. The UNCRC also called on Ireland to strengthen measures to eliminate discrimination against LGBTQ children, as well as children of minority faith or non-faith backgrounds. The issue has raised its head again after reports by the Irish Department for Education were submitted to the UNCRC to highlight progress following previous recommendations. Finally, BBC News features a Long Read article about the BAFTA-nominated film Blue Jean, And the lesbian teachers who inspired it. The plot follows a lesbian PE teacher in the late 1980s at a time when a controversial law banned the promotion of homosexuality via section 28. The legislation was in force until 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England and Wales. The film was released on the 10th of February. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox. This
0: is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk
4: Radio. Hello, this week I'm taking a look at the AI-powered, all-new Microsoft Bing search. we soon to be saying, Bing it instead of Google it. There's only one way to decide. Let's have a search engine scrap. First, to use Bing, it's recommended you have the Edge browser installed. However, you can just go to bing.com. To get the full experience, I'm signing into my Microsoft account on bing.com in the Edge browser and signing into my Google account on google.co.uk in Chrome. Putting both interfaces side by side, they look the same, only Google has no distractions. Today that is, as sometimes there's a Google Doodle to celebrate something. Bing has a block of top news stories and you can scroll down to see more headlines and ads. This I feel is a negative for Bing as it's really easy to be distracted. Click something that catches your eye and searching turns to procrastinating. Other slight differences are Bing search results when clicked, opening a new tab, Google's don't. This is not a problem on your computer but tabs are different on your phone and it could be a little annoying having to close them if you're doing an extensive search. On the flip side, it could be useful if comparing prices etc. The decision is for you to make. I know what you're thinking. Test the AI Steve. Okay, I'm on it. As Bing now wants to chat with me, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue five people the results differ Bing gives me 165 million results top being planning a large barbecue cookout for a crowd it was a decent read and ranged from cooking for 60 to 100 people to five to six I'm now quite hungry Google gave me a string of barbecues to buy adverts and then the first result was on the barbecue calculator this was right up my geek street and I think Google won this round you put the number of people in and they put the number of kids in and select some other options and it tells you what you need to buy to have a barbecue for that many people genius. Omni was third down in the Bing search. Only very slightly is Google winning at the moment. I like that Bing didn't hit me with ads straight away. I thought Google suggested searches that people also asked bit was neater and easier to scan than Bing's. Bing's was a bit wordy. With Google slightly in the lead, let's do my last test. I'm going to introduce some vegans. Now on my search in Bing, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. To a vegan, what should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue five people to vegan. Bing brings me 176 million results and Google and me 109 million. Both show pretty much exact results apart from the advertising from Google. Same top sites and no sign of meat anywhere. I'm inundated with vegan recipes for barbecue. Scrolling down AI wins. The sixth result on Bing is 20 tips for hosting a vegan guest to dinner. By the time I get to page 4 of Google's results, I've given up. To draw a conclusion, it's down to personal preference. Bing uses the same search algorithms and the AI is new, so it's still learning. The question is really, what will it be like in the future when it's had time to learn more? Don't forget to tell us what you would do if a vegan was coming to your barbecue. Get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was 2 Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing
0: on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Okay, welcome back. Um, This is the last 10 minutes of the show. Um, So we're just going to ace through our last two segments. Remember, we've looked at the digital policy that we must consider. um, the digital fluency, should I say, we must consider for our policy framework. We're going to look at our last two goals now and explore those in some depth, which is the device management plans that you may adopt for your school, as well as the cloud services um, that you um, are uh, that you could consider for your school um, policy as well. Now, if we are serious about pulling school A into something more akin to school C or school B into something more like school C, then we need not only to develop the digital fluency of our stakeholders, but also consider the role that devices play and the cloud platforms in which we should adopt in our own contexts. As we move into the digital age of education, technology has taken center stage and revolutionized the way that we learn. Devices such as laptops, tablets and smartphones have created endless opportunities for students to enhance their education and achieve better outcomes however with great power comes great responsibility two points if anyone can tell me which um comic book that comes from a robust device management plan is crucial to ensure effectiveness and security in schools across the country across the globe even now within this segment it provides um this segment provides advice guidelines rules and requirements for managing devices within your institution including the concept of leasing bring in your own device as well as the hybrid approach the ultimate goal though is to provide you with a clear and concise set of ideas that you could apply to your school's framework Um, within your own um, context. Remember, context is key. Now, let's uh, begin by looking at leased devices. Now, these are more than just a cost-effective solution for schools and organisations. A leased device is kind of on loan to the student in question and paid for over a period of time by the student's parents. Um, Having a leased device policy can transform the way that students learn and engage with education by providing access to technology that enhances the learning experience. They basically get a laptop. It enhances their learning experience. So in this, you know, in effect, it sort of forces parents to purchase a piece of tech for their child to access learning, something that may not have been considered a necessity in the past. And you can set up management plans that are affordable and paid across the the, the five years that the student will be at the school. And the end result is they end up with um, a device that they can continue using into their, their adulthood if that's what they choose to do. Although, how you know quickly a uh, laptop's update nowadays, um, within five years, you could be using an outdated piece of tech. Now, having their own device on loan from the school, students can access digital tools and resources that deepen their understanding of the subject matter. And this will obviously lead to improved learning outcomes with at least device management plan in place, IT staff can then remotely monitor and manage devices to ensure that they are secure and working properly. You know, it reduces the risk of theft. It reduces the risk of damage and loss. um, But there is one major concern, and that's the increased cost of providing and maintaining devices for all students. You know, if you're serious about doing a leased policy, uh, a leased device policy for your school setting, then, no, it's going to come with a big price tag. You've got to pay for those machines upfront, and then obviously you can then get the, the money back over time. But it's the maintenance costs that would be um, you'd have to invest in as well to maintain that fleet of machines. Now, on the other hand, a BYOD policy allows students to bring their own personal devices to school and use them for educational purposes. Now, we mentioned earlier that BYOD stands for bring your own device and was originally a term coined. By the nerds at intel when they first started bringing i shouldn't say nerds that's a very horrible thing to say those poor those professionals at intel when they first started bringing their personal devices into work now byod policies can increase student engagement and again, and again and motivation as students have greater autonomy over their learning environment and they can personalize their devices to their liking additionally schools can save money by adopting a byod policy something that seems desirable in our current socioeconomic environment. However, there are some challenges to consider, such as compatibility issues and security concerns. Let's say, for example... Um, a school allows students to use their personal devices to access work related applications and data if one of these devices is infected with malware or a virus it could compromise the security of the school's network and sensitive data uh, which would be an absolute nightmare if you've ever experienced um, anything like this in your settings additionally the school may not have control over how students secure their personal devices which creates even more vulnerabilities which could be exploited by cyber criminals and other viruses and threats etc so your policy needs to decide, really, if you are going to incorporate devices and have digitalization take place in your school across the whole curriculum, how are students going to access this learning? Is it going to be their personal devices that they bring themselves, or is it a lease device management plan? And we've spoken about some of the advantages and disadvantages of both of them. Um, there is a hybrid approach where you could potentially take on both but again you've got to weigh up those those costs. Finally, just to finish the show off, we have to consider the cloud platforms that have become increasingly the go-to solution for storing and managing data in schools. You've got the two big players really and we've spoke we've already kind of discussed it slightly. You've got Google Classroom or Microsoft 365. Google Classroom has its benefits because it is so universal it's out there you know there is lots of customization that you could apply to it um you know there's there's you know the the, the, you know it's free to use essentially and it's synced to the internet really it's google but office 365 the other platform it offers unparalleled integration with existing systems within schools already i would imagine many schools already utilize office 365 perhaps not to its full potential um so as we wrap up this episode, it's clear that digitalization is transforming education in a profound ways and schools must embrace these changes to remain relevant and effective. And you'll know that the digitalization of education isn't a new thing and in fact has been growing exponentially over the past decades. I mean, just remember, you know, when we were at school um, and we were being taught on how to use the, the internet and you being taught how to use PCs. Um, but we think about the exponential growth that's occurring around us now as we further progress into the 21st century and ai systems are learning and teaching us how to code and how to create new technologies even faster than before you know schools should have a comprehensive policy framework that clearly sets out its objectives in assimilating to this digital world you know developing that digital fluency for all stakeholders outlining a clear approach to device management plans as well as aligning to a cloud service that is suitable for their context all the time being ready as well to flex and adapt to the context of the school whereupon the policy is being set now i will end the show there i know that was a fairly um A fairly quick ending. I do hope that you've enjoyed listening today. As ever, any questions that you have, please do send them my way. You'll find me on LinkedIn, Mark Nichols, future leader. Um, And so I guess this is it. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. And I hope that you have learned and gained some valuable insight as to how your school could successfully navigate policy concerning the digitalization of education. On that note, I wish you a good evening.